night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is Dr. Alan Francis, psychiatrist and author of Twilight of American Sanity, a psychiatrist analyzes the age of Trump. For the countless Americans who are concerned about the future of our democracy, Twilight of American Sanity provides an urgently needed prescription for reclaiming our psychological bearings. Psychiatrist Dr. Alan Francis examines the national psyche, viewing the rise of President Trump as a mirror on our soul, one that is darkly symptomatic of a deeper societal stress. Dr. Francis was the chairman of the DSM-4 Task Force and former chair of the Department of Psychiatry at Duke University. Uh, Dr. Francis, welcome to the show. Nice to have you here. Well, so, so nice of you to invite me. Thank you. Okay, well, your book obviously, I think, has a different twist than uh, a lot of what we hear about in the press today, that we have, you know, that there's something wrong with the president, that, uh, you know, he's a narcissist, that he has a personality disorder, and what you're saying, I guess, in your book is that, uh, well, we don't have to, we, it's not necessarily to diagnose the president, but we have to diagnose ourselves. What's wrong with us that we, that we came to this point, I guess, in our political history? So, yeah. And I think Trump is as transparent as any human could possibly be, and, and uh, psychological uh, analysis of his motivations or psychiatric efforts to get him uh, declared unfit for office, I think these are a real distraction. Um, we certainly have to contain this man. We, uh, Congress has to step up to the plate and provide adult supervision. Um, we, we have to find ways to keep his finger off the nuclear button. Um, we have to protect ourselves from his attacks on democracy. So I'm not underestimating what a terrible president he is. Uh, I'm just saying he's a bad person, not, not a mentally ill person. And I think that the opportunity must be taken to use Trump as a wake-up call that the problems that um, he's making much worse existed far before him. I, I started writing this book two years before Trump dreamed of running for election. And uh, if we don't somehow uh, reflect upon ourselves, develop an insight about the mistakes we're making as a society, if we don't use Trump as an opportunity to improve our, our policies for the future, then he'll lead us into a dark age. And this is a, a really tipping, tipping point, I think, between the, the, the worst of policies, which he's uh, espousing and executing, and a, a chance to, to finally sort of um, look deep at the um, at ourselves and look out at the dangers we're facing and meet them more rationally and with longer-term planning and more generosity than, than we've done in the past. So how do we do this? I mean, how do we approach it, I guess? What what do we do as, as a... Uh, I mean, obviously, you're, you're saying we have to look at it in terms of our politics, right? Or, or the context in which Trump is operating. Uh, well, we don't want another Trump either. So... Uh, how do we take a look at ourselves and then and and see where where we've come from and where we're going to go? Because you said you started writing this book what two years before Trump was even elected. So what was happening then? I think if we want a concrete example, the clearest thing in the world is the uh, the two hurricanes that hit the U.S. within 16 days. Um, 
there have only been 25 hurricanes this size in the last 166 years in the United States. So they're rare occurrences. And we had two within 16 days. Um, Houston, Texas has had three Category 5, three hurricanes in the last three years that were meant to be once in 500-year hurricanes. And Irma is the most powerful hurricane in terms of intensity of winds over time in the history of the world. The governors of these two states have been climate deniers. And, and although both of them responded well to the EQ crisis, they remain climate deniers. Uh, the, the first, I, I talked about societal delusions in the book, and, and about 13 of them. And the first one's global warming. It's a societal delusion that we can tiptoe into the future, um, producing all of this carbon dioxide, and not create a planet that will have unlivably extreme uh, climate catastrophes. That we inherited an Earth, and it's our job to bequeath an Earth is equally livable, that we can't sustain policies that benefit just us and are unsustainable for our kids and our grandkids. It's a societal delusion to act like climate change isn't happening when all of the scientific models and virtually all of the scientists um, have absolutely compelling proof it is happening and uh, compelling proof that it's man-made. I don't think people can say that maybe this is natural variation. When 16 of the last, uh, 16 of the, of the hottest 17 years in the history of, of climate tracking have occurred in this century, every single year being a record-setting year. It, it, it's impossible to deny the ice melting, the oceans heating, levels rising, and the um, absolutely disastrous impact. It's already bad, but imagine what this will be like in, in, the, in the future. So the, the, the um, effort to wake us up to reality doesn't take any stretch of the imagination. We just have to see how people will respond to this event, this series of events. And what the politicians do, including the governors of, of Texas and, and, uh, and Florida and the president, what they do is try to say, you know, we can't talk about global warming now because that's disrespectful to the suffering of the people, the victims of these hurricanes. But then they'll never get around to talking about it. That we have to have a different outlook and we have to have, make our politicians have a different outlook. That when these things happen, we take stock of the reasons for them and we take actions for the future. It's absolutely crazy to be spending hundreds of billions of dollars on repair work and not buying insurance to prevent recurrences in the future. We buy life insurance, not expecting to die tomorrow. Car insurance, we buy before the accident, not after the accident. We need to be buying global warming insurance. And, and that requires us making some sacrifices now, but this is a useful preventive maintenance investment in the future of our children and grandchildren. So this is just one example. The book has about 13 different catastrophic existential threats to our country. Uh, well, I'd like to go through some of them. Not, we don't have time to go through all of them, but I just want to stick with this one for a minute because we're having difficult climate change. Our politicians, the president, these two governors that you mentioned, 
refuse to define the problem. I mean, what and then uh, the media also, what is their role in this? Because we're, ta- you know, for instance, you know, in terms of covering, let's say, these two hurricanes, they talk about heroics and, you know, and, and how, you know, good people and uh, not that that's not something we want to acknowledge, but there's really, I haven't seen to anything about what you're talking about. Let's talk about how this happened or why it happened and what we have to do. It's just all about the the, the disaster itself and, and sort of praising people for the work they've done and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, doesn't the media have some role or some responsibility in all of this? Well, sure. I, I think one of the chapters in the book is about why we make such terrible decisions. Why as a species are we so smart? Um, how, how can we produce an Einstein and at the same time produce a Trump? Uh, what is it in the nature of our brain wiring that has us think so short-term and so selfishly? And uh, the human nature, the two, the two major causes of our stupidity in dealing with something like global warming are human nature and big money. Uh, so the human nature part is that um, our brains are wired for the conditions of 50,000 years ago when life was very short. And most of our reactions are emotional. They're very quick. They're not thought out. And they don't take into account the long term because our ancestors didn't live into the long term. The, uh, the money part comes from the most obvious example is, is Texas, where Texas is a state that, that perhaps will be the most damaged by global warming. It's also the state that's most encouraging global warming because the big energy companies control uh, the government. Florida, um, you know, Florida's sinking anyway because of the long-term uh, after effects of the ice age. To, to have a state that's that flat, sinking, being logged with seawater, and right in the eye of the storm, not take the lead in the country on global warming is crazy. The governor of Florida should be uh, someone who's an absolute champion of preventing global warming. Instead, we have someone who accepts uh, millions of dollars from energy companies so that the sunshine state, which should be a leader in solar energy, is paralyzed in producing it. So I think that the media has done a wonderful job in fact-checking Trump. And um, we have to be grateful that they're free, and we have to be grateful that they've been very, very aggressive in defending the truth against uh, his constant lying. But there is a tendency to get caught up in the narrative story of the moment. Human beings love stories. And the narrative story of the moment, the drama, is much more compelling than what does this mean and what do the statistics show us and what do we learn from this past event that will help us uh, avoid future recurrences. I think that um, a grown-up nation would be taking this as an alarming wake-up call, not just focused on the suffering of the moment. And there's nothing more disrespectful to a suffering victim than doing nothing now and having that person undergo the same problem next week, next year, and have his children undergo even more recurrences, more frequent recurrences in the future. Houston has been hit by three of these amazing storms in three years. It's disrespectful to the people of Houston to let this keep happening. And I think the media is the watchdog. Two weeks before Harvey struck land, Donald Trump 
aggressively derided Obama policies, part of his anti-Obama crusade, Obama policies to prevent, to provide infrastructure to prevent floods. So part of his infrastructure plan was to eliminate infrastructure that would help cities like Houston defend themselves against floods. The media has to be calling this out constantly. And it's not just a matter of seeing people in rowboats and, and doing heroic rescues. It's a matter of calling out the politicians who won't rescue us from the long-term consequences of global warming. But I think it's also the people. I think that we can't count now on our politicians to do the right thing. We've, we've learned from experience that that's not happening. I think people have to wake up. And someone who voted for Trump and loves Trump has to start thinking about his children when he's cleaning the mud out of the living room, when his lifelong possessions have been lost, when there are no more photographs left of what his family history was like. I think that person has to wonder whether a president who appointed a, an EPA uh, director, Environmental Protection Agency director, who, whose main ambition in life is destroying the agency and so far succeeded very much in, in silencing it, when he's appointed energy executives and climate deniers to most of the powerful positions in the cabinet. Should I be voting for this man, who, though not directly responsible for this flood, because whatever caused these hurricanes was in, in the, in, baked into the cake a long time ago, but should I support someone that's going to be doing all the things he possibly can to promote global warming? And don't I have a responsibility to my kids to prevent that? Now, can, can people become more rational? Sure. The, the parts of our brain that are emotional and short-term have many more connections to the rational part of our brain than our rational part of the brain has connections to the emotional part. That's why he makes us lousy, emotional, short-term, selfish decisions. But we are rational creatures, too. We do have the capacity to rein in emotions. And I think if there were ever a time when people will be rational, it's a time of crisis, when they are forced to face the um, deceptions and delusions. And if we, I, I'm absolutely confident that sooner or later, everyone in the world will believe in global warming and that it's man-made and that we have to do something about it. There will come a time when it's absolutely believed by everyone. It's increasing every year. And when things get bad enough, no one will be a climate denier. Yeah, but, but is there a is tipping point for is there a tipping point for that? I mean, isn't there a point at which even when we finally realize or believe in go it's really not a belief, it's a scientific fact, but uh, at, that we get to a certain point where we can't do a lot about it if we wait too long. I mean, if we wait too long. Uh, it's precisely the point that what's completely independent, which I think absolutely certain is that there will come a time when every single person on earth uh, will understand global warming and be terrified by it. The question is what will come first, that understanding and the steps taken to prevent it from happening or reaching past a tipping point where we can't do anything about it. Nature is ever so much more powerful than we are. We can screw it up in the short run for us but we can't um, control it once we've made the mistakes. And past a certain point, I don't think that there'll be a technological, an easy technological solution to global warming, and we will be swept up in extreme climate extremes. And the, uh, the question that you raise is absolutely the, the, the question facing, existential question facing humanity. Which comes first? Do we wise up first, or do we get battered first? And I'm hoping 
that we was on first. And I, I think that these hurricanes, you know, it's not just these two hurricanes, it's, it's a whole series of things that are happening to the earth everywhere. But it's a wake-up call for anyone with eyes to see and a mind open enough to be um, amenable to facts and a generosity that extends to future generations. You, you don't want your kids to have to go through Houston every year. And I think people who voted for Trump <clears throat> have to think about that. You know, one of the things that, uh, you know, and this is, I think some of these topics are these topics, climate change, infrastructure. Um, we've known for a long, long time that our infrastructure, we need to do something about it. It's antiquated. But infrastructure isn't sexy. People don't like, and I'm using, you know, like it's not a sexy thing. It's not something that people get off on. So they sort of, it's it's not something that they, not that they don't necessarily think it's important, but nobody really gets hooked into it. There are other things that just are, are, are sexier. Um, and I think that's part of the problem. We like the kind of the, as you say, the stories and the drama, but and you also say that we are rational people. So how do we hook into the rational side of, of all of us um, and not get sort of waylaid by all the stuff that, that's more fun? That the, yeah. I think it's very important for parents. <laughs> I think it's very important for all of us. In fact, that's why I got started on this. I mean, I've been a political no-show my whole life, missing in action to every um, major political event in, in the 74 years of my life. And, and I started this book because in looking at the world that we're handing down to my children, and especially my grandchildren, there's a real sadness that their lives are not likely to be as good as ours, that, that we've lived, lived in a special sweet spot uh, of good fortune and stability. And there's a downward trend. I think we have to try to, to, to think about every policy decision, not just in terms of what's comfortable for us now, but what will make the world most livable for them in the future. And I think it's easier to do that with your kids when you're thinking about concrete things like um, the infrastructure of an education for them. It's a little bit more abstract to, to worry about the fact that they may be uh, flooded out or uh, there may be a, a wildfire. You know, the climate change is causing un unprecedented wildfires in the West uh, or there may be uh, enormous droughts that will hurt the economy that they'll be living in. It, 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 it's easier to see the immediate dangers to our kids and grandkids than the longer-term ones. And again, that's because we came from creatures that, that had an average life expectancy of 35 years. We couldn't think long-term if survival was a day-to-day -day basis. But we have to adjust to the circumstances of today. And infrastructure built in our country now is a crucial legacy for our kids and grandkids. Uh, it's amazing if you go around the country and 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 um, see the the bridges and the, the uh, national parks and the roads. How many things were done during the depression? That's just 80, 80 years ago. That the country made a tremendous effort to pull itself out of the depression with an infrastructure program, and we are still the beneficiaries of that program uh, all around the country. Uh, th that generosity came from des economic desperation, but it's a legacy that, that really we have to be grateful for, and we have to do the same kind of thing, pay forward for our kids. Well, don't you think, uh, I think one of the things that sort of emerged from all this, uh, well, from 
the election of Trump, and uh, actually I think it's Michael Bloomberg who is sort of uh, talks about this is we have to also in terms of being able to do something or to 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 address the topics that you're talking about in climate change that that towns and cities and states um, have a lot of power in terms of political power and then maybe we haven't really taken advantage of that as, in terms of our cities and our towns and our states in terms of being getting on board. Michael Moore talks about this too, uh, and and being able to make a difference and and to address some of these changes because we've kind of we, we I think we've sort of maybe as Americans or as we we just have sort of let you know you know we don't vote in local elections, we don't even in state elections with governors and uh, maybe if we do more of that. That's one way of addressing some of the stuff we've been talking about today. I think it's very important. I think we have to realize that there's been a concerted campaign in the last 50 years on the part of the super rich to spend money at the local level, the state level. The Koch brothers are the most obvious, but there are many, many different um, organizations that they and others have created that have become enormously um, powerful at the state and local level. It's easy, like North Carolina, where I spent a number of years. North Carolina was a um, pretty balanced state, but balanced towards the liberal side. Now it has the most conservative, or one of the most conservative state legislatures in the country. That didn't happen by accident. It cost about $15 million. You can buy state governments and local governments on the cheap. And the super greedy... Uh, people, you know, it's 20 people now have as much wealth as half the population in the U.S. 20 billionaires control as much wealth as 170 million Americans. And with this much money available, with an ideological um, belief that they deserve to inherit the earth, and and with the um, ease with which it's it's possible to buy elections in, in local and state government, uh, they were able to gerrymander the country so that even if the Democrats win a huge popular majority in House elections, they're likely to, to lose the number of seats because of the way things are, are rigged and gerrymandered. I think that it's going to be very difficult, especially this next, next election. It's almost an uphill, almost impossible battle. As bad as Trump is, as terrible and as obviously failing the um, GOP Congress, as ridiculous the performance of many of the state GOP governors in Kansas and Texas and Florida, as bad as it is, they will likely maintain control of all three branches of the federal government, and, and they control 32 state governments, all three branches. And I think that this is, uh, I was never someone who cared about politics. Now, I'm sitting on the beach when Martin Luther King is giving, uh, I have a dream speech thinking how lucky I am to be able to be on the beach. I, I was a shameless, uh, shamelessly passive and active person. But if you get me roused, I think most people should feel a sense that we have to take our government back. And again, I can't emphasize enough that the existential problems don't go away because we have delusional denial about them. They get worse. And the solutions become much more difficult the longer you wait. So that an ounce of prevention really is a pound of cure when it comes to the policy problems we're facing. Okay, so and Dr. Francis, if we say we agree to that, we only have a few minutes left. Okay. You're a psychiatrist. 
how do you get people, and if you're saying if, if you can get involved politically, anybody can because you weren't somebody who traditionally was involved in politics or even cared. How do we get people to, you know, get off the couch and do something? Because many people, like you say, okay, the Koch brothers have billions of dollars and, you know, uh, and other uh groups of billionaires who run everything and people say, well, what can I do? I mean, I don't have the money. I don't have the power. You know, they get into that mindset. I'm just going to go to work, take care of my kids, come home, do what I do and go on. And they have this kind of attitude of like, uh, there's nothing I can do. I'm not naive about how difficult it is to, to change people. And my whole career is working with psychiatric patients. And one of the things I've learned is that um, in moments of crisis, people are open to understanding things that previously they didn't want to hear. I, I worked in emergency rooms my whole career, and people would come up to me years later, I'd for five minutes, and they'd say, you know, you said something that changed my whole life. Whereas other people I worked with for 14 years, no, no benefit. Um, the, the time has to be right, and I think it is now. I think the, the crisis the country's faced, country faces and the grotesqueness of Trump are leaving more and more people open to the notion that we're in the wrong direction. We have to change. Rationality doesn't come easily, but I think that repeating over and over, and we're, what we're trying to do today, the, the, we can't respond to these floods as if it's just an act of God. We have to respond to it as if it's man-made. We have to do something. I'm hoping that a few people get convinced of that. And what I'm hoping is that those who get convinced become much more active that they talk to their friends, that they attend demonstrations, that they're out there trying to canvas and to be uh, convincing against the huge money that's um, against rationality. I think people have to realize that ultimately the country is our responsibility and we can't let the, uh, the billionaires and the giant corporations and the Trumps and the um, AstroTurf Tea Party take over our country. We have an obligation to our country and to our kids. Yeah. And things have changed in the past 20 to 30 years because obviously this is the obvious, but we have more, ac- all of us have more access to information. I mean, the information is out there and obviously it's readily available. So th- I think that's changed. That's very different. So it, I think that is something that should encourage us to take action that because we do have information and um, we didn't maybe really have that, say, 20 to t- before the Internet works both ways. There's never been more knowledge or seemingly less wisdom than in our internet age. And it's been very much abused by the people who propagandize and, and brainwash. But again, I think that Trump will lose voters and in losing voters, his policies will lose voters. I think patriots should be worried about a president who trusts Putin more than our own national security agency. People who are going to lose medical coverage because of Trump should realize the importance of Obamacare and not deride it. Um, people who are worried about uh, jobs should realize that Trump was a false prophet on jobs, and we have to protect the minimum wage and have to protect the workers' safety and rights. And I think religious people should think twice. I think they were snookered into a, a pact with the devil. Jesus Christ was the opposite of Donald Trump in every way and was um, definitely been with Pope Francis doing all he could to get people more concerned about the, the poor and the average and less concerned about the rich and the greedy. So I think that, that Trump, in a way, is a useful thing. It's kind of shock treatment, not easy, 
But the useful thing, if people seeing through him start seeing the, the rational policies that are the opposite of what he's doing, the things that need to be done now or else we're going to have a, a much worse world in the future. Well, that's a good note to 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 leave on because uh, we have no time left. I won't, so I and we got as far as climate change and a little bit further than that. So people got to get out and read your book, buy your book, Twilight of American Sanity. A psychiatrist analyzes the age of Trump, uh, and it's Alan Francis, MD. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Great talking to you. Well, actually, you asked wonderful questions, and so it was a, a pleasure. And I'm grateful for the opportunity to try to get the message across. Great. Thank you. Uh, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is psychology professor... Jean Twangy, PhD, author of iGen, Why Today's Super-Connected Kids Are Growing Up Less Rebellious, More Tolerant, Less Happy, and Completely Unprepared for Adulthood. iGen, born between 1995 and 2012, has never known a world without smartphones, Amazon and Facebook, uh, which they no longer use, aka Gen Z. They are glued to the internet, socialize in in uh, person in in socializing less have higher rates of anxiety and depression they party less 
get along better with their parents, and are more open-minded than any generation before them. Dr. Twangy analyzes data from decades of nationally representative studies to bring us closer to understanding this next generation and our future. Author of more than 120 scientific publications and three books, her works are covered in the New York Times, Washington Post, uh, Dateline, NPR. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here, uh, Dr. Twangy. Thank you so much. Okay, well, this is a whole entirely, obviously, new generation, the iGen generation. Uh, I guess my first question is, why is it, I mean, they are so different, as you say in your book, like totally, completely different than, say, all the past previous generations. And you sort of break down their differences into six major trends in the book. Um, I guess my first question is, why is it important for us to understand this generation and the impact that it, they will have on our now and on our future? Yeah, so iGen, as you noticed, was born about 1995 to 2012. So they're today's kids. They're our youngest young adults. So they're already in our high schools and colleges and just starting to enter the workplace. And I think, you know, a lot of people will be somewhat surprised how different they are from the millennial generation just before them. So um, there's a number of trends that really shape iGen. Um, but, you know, all of them together really point to the, how important it is to listen to young people and, you know, what they have to say. So that was my real goal in uh, writing the book and analyzing um, this survey data from millions of teens and young adults and doing in-depth interviews is to find out how are they living their lives differently from generations in the past. And because of the smartphone, especially during their teen years, they are really living their lives differently. You know, what's interesting is how quickly things change. I mean, you're talking about the difference between them and the millennials, for instance. I mean, that isn't a very long period of time. Uh, and, and you're saying that there are major differences between this generation and the millennials? Yeah. So, you know, I've been, I've been doing this for a while. For about 25 years, I've been looking at generational differences. And what I get used to seeing in the transition between, say, boomers and Gen Xers and Gen Xers and millennials, yeah, there were some generational differences for sure, but they tended to take some time to show up, five or ten years, and then you would start seeing a, a clear difference. But in the transition between millennials and iGen, it was much more sudden. Uh, right around 2011 or 2012, I started to see some really big differences in how teens spent their time and in their mental health. And I found out later, um, after noticing these uh, trends at that time, that that happens to be the year, 2012, um, when the percentage of Americans owning a smartphone crossed 50%. So right around the time everybody, you know, the majority of people got a smartphone, that's when these changes started to show up. So that's what really defines iGen. It's also why I call them iGen, like iPods and iPhones. Or they don't know what an iPod is, sorry. iPads and iPhones. So at that 2012, that's when everyone, oh, it crossed, more than 50% of mm-hmm. us owned yeah, smartphones. So that changed everything. And also, and you're talking about, I just want to mention this, because you're talking about uh, the these this group, the iGens, so all socioeconomic levels, regions of the country, diff- uh, races—you've combined all of them, right? This is a this is a 
yeah, 11 million individuals. That's who you did the st- survey on. That's a lot of people. Yeah, a lot thank of goodness I didn't have to hand out all those questionnaires. Yeah. Um, <laughs> those are those are national surveys, uh, you know, done by you know different organizations, uh, mostly government funded, and they collect nationally representative samples. So there's one, two surveys of high school students, for example, and yeah, they get kids from every single background. They do, um, a, they look at that very carefully to make sure. Um, that that's the case. And then in analyzing the data, I wanted to make sure that these trends showed up across uh, different social classes and races and regions um, in both boys and girls. And for the most part, they do. There's a couple of exceptions here and there, but um, the trends say around smartphones and um, declines, say, in spending time with your friends in person, those show up across all um, classes. And that's probably because the smartphone really eliminated any uh, technology or internet gap uh, between kids with uh, more money and those with less in their families. So, because so many people get get their internet access now just through, through their phone, even kids without as many resources um, are often having the same experience with screen time that those uh, with more resources do. Okay, so that leveled the playing field. Um, okay, let's talk about, let's go through some of those, the, the character, you know, the this the iGens that the, uh, some of the characteristics that define them because uh, you you spell those out uh, in the ten major trends. Start with the first one that you, one of these things you say is they're in no hurry. Um, this yeah, go ahead. What does that mean? Yeah, so um, most people have probably seen at least one trend piece or another over the last few years talking about how the teen pregnancy rate is at an all-time low or that kids are less likely to uh, work at a paid job. And when you see these articles, they often say, oh, you know, either we're not really sure why it happened or they'll say, well, you know, maybe it's because teens are more virtuous and responsible. And then when it comes to working, then they'll say, oh, but maybe teens are lazy. And I think all of those miss the big picture, which is it's not just those trends. Pretty much everything that distinguishes children from adults, um, teens now do it later. So iGen teens compared to teens, say, 10 years ago or 20 years ago, are less likely to um, work at a job, to have a driver's license, to go out without their parents, to date, to have sex, and to drink alcohol. Now, some of those trends are what many people would consider good, um, Others are neither one, say driving and working has trade-offs, um, but they all speak to teens taking longer to embrace both the pleasures and the responsibilities of adulthood. So 18-year-olds now look like what 15-year-olds used to, at least in terms of their behaviors. So in terms of their maturity, would you say? Because those are di- obviously different categories, not getting your driver's license, staying at home, less likely to work. But Yeah, um, I wouldn't use, I would yeah. not use the word mature or words mature or immature because um, that doesn't really capture what's going on either. Because is it more mature or less mature to have sex as a high school senior? Is it more mature or less mature to have your driver's license, um, to, to work at a job? It doesn't really fit. The only thing that really explains all of those trends is taking longer to grow up. Yeah, although you could talk about, well, is it more mature to have responsible sex? I put the word responsible in there. Is it more to get your driver's license and take on some responsibilities? Um, Less likely to work. 
doesn't, for 18-year-olds, let's say, doesn't seem like a particularly positive thing. Um, but I, those are, so, I, you know, I don't know. And you ask the question, is, is that good or bad? But the, the, I guess the, the statistics just show that they are, well, you say that 14-year-olds act like 12-year-olds and 17-year-olds are acting like 14-year-olds. Right. Um, and, you know, that, that sounds like it's a criticism, but it's really not because in many ways these are things that are wonderful trends. It is great that fewer teens are drinking alcohol and getting pregnant, for example. It's just seeing it just through the lens of bad and good misses the whole uh, broader picture of the slower development. Okay, so what do you think the implications are? I mean, as a researcher, obviously, as a psychologist, I mean, in that they're in no hurry to grow up. I'm saying, or um, what are the implications for the, for the future? I mean, yeah, well, you know, on the one hand, these trends mean that teens are safer, and that shows up in many areas as well. Um, that because they're not going out as much and driving as much and so on, they are safer. Um, but for the future, and I think we're already seeing this now, there's a potential downside, which is that when uh, iGen gets to college and gets to the workplace, they don't have as much experience with independence and with making their own decisions. So that is a potential downside to the slower development that they're still going to college for example, at the same age, at 18, but 18-year-olds are not as independent and don't have as much experience with making their own decisions as 18-year-olds did 10 or 20 years ago. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. And I think that, so you have these kids going to college who haven't uh, had to make choices. Well, let's take the drivers. They don't have driver's license. Suddenly they go to college and they're driving around with other people. Uh, they don't, maybe they're, you know, they just haven't had the opportunity to sort of navigate the waters in a, in a re- responsible way. And uh, I think that puts them, to me, in a not so good position. Like doing all of these things at home in the context of living in a, you know, say w- with your parents gives you an opportunity to experiment, but sort of in a more safe environment. And so then you go to college and you just begin to do all this stuff. And uh, but you're supposedly on your own. Maybe you haven't developed the good judgmental skills. I, I mean, I, I don't, yeah. Yeah, so that, that's a possibility. So, you know, one example of that is alcohol use. So um, I think most, almost everybody would agree, eighth graders, for example, being much less likely to drink alcohol is a absolutely fantastic thing. Um, but there's been some of the um, research on alcohol use among older teens, so 18 and 19-year-olds, what they find is 18 and 19-year-olds are a lot less likely to have any experience with alcohol, which seems like a very good thing and mostly is. But 21 to 22-year-olds still drink just as much as they ever did. So that transition is taking, taking place over a much shorter period of time, that they're ramping up their drinking over a very short period of time. And that's potentially problematic, according to a few studies. Uh, okay, let's go on to the next one, because you talk about the Internet and the Internet and, and, the, and the iGens. Let's, what's their, uh, you know, what is their relationship to the Internet, which is different? So um, 
iGen teams, so in 2015, for example, spend about twice as much time online as teens did in 2006. Um, they spend a lot more time on uh, social media. So they're much more likely to visit social media sites very frequently. It used to be you know, maybe 40% or so would go on it every day. Now it's almost 90% who go on it every day uh, or, or uh, at least occasionally. So it's become almost a mandatory thing to be on social media for uh, teens. So uh, as of 2015, uh, the average iGen teen spends, depending on the survey, between six to eight hours of leisure time on um, a screen, whether that's so, so it's social media, texting, online, and gaming. Um, most of that is on the phone, but it can also be on a desktop computer or on a tablet. But that's an enormous amount of time. So that has ended up crowding out a lot of other things teens used to do in their leisure time. So things like just hanging out with your friends or going to parties or going to the mall or driving around in a car in-person, face-to-face social activities. iGen teens do those much less frequently than teens did just five years ago. So that trend started with the millennials because online communication began you know, in, uh, in that era, uh, in the 2000s. But it really, really accelerated, kind of fell off a cliff um, right around 2011, right when uh, social media became more mandatory and phones, smartphones became ubiquitous. So how much, and you ask this question, how much is too much? How much is too much time on the Internet? Do we know that? Um, sort of. Um, <laughs> the, you know, there, we still need more research on that question. Um, from these surveys, you can look at, for example, the number of hours that teens spend on, let's just take social media. And there are, there are teens who spend, by their own admission, about 10% of teens spend 40 or more hours a week on social media. So that's the top category. Then there's some who only spend a few hours a week. If you compare those two groups, there's a pretty big difference uh, in the percentage who say that they're unhappy. About twice as many of those at that extreme number, amount of use are unhappy compared to those who use social media only a little bit. So it looks like Using social media up to about two hours a day or so doesn't seem to have tremendously negative effects. It's after that. It's those who are on it three, four, five hours uh, a day and beyond that um, have a much higher risk for not just being unhappy but being uh, feeling lonely, um, feeling depressed, and even having risk factors for suicide like um, thinking about suicide, um, having a suicide plan, even attempting suicide. One of the surveys asks uh, teens if they've ever thought of doing those things. And those who are on screens more than two hours a day uh, are more likely um, to have those suicide risk factors than those who use screens a moderate amount. So that those results really suggest, especially for older teens, you know, it's not the solution that completely, you know, take the phone out of their hands and say, okay, you can't have this anymore. But limited use seems to be kind of the sweet spot for mental health and happiness. Because we create a situation where you, of isolation, which you talk about in the book. I mean, you're really isolating yourself for any kind of face-to-face interaction or connectivity. Or, I mean, if you're on the phone four to six hours a day um, and 
you know, as a, as a social worker, one knows that, that you know, that being isolated like that is definitely a precursor to depression, you know, more than just unhappiness, but depression, anxiety, and as you say, even suicide. Um, that's pretty scary. I mean, I, I mean, I don't know, like, I guess we, and how, what do you do about it? I mean, if you have so many of these teenagers, these iGens doing this, um, how, you know, what's, how do you, and you know that, um, um, you know, it has negative effects from being on the internet so much. How, what do you, how do you, you know, attack this problem, I guess? Well, you know, I think the, the first thing is just to get this discussion going oh, um, and to realize that being on a phone for that many hours a day, a lot of people have assumed it's harmless, and it's not. Um, so to make one thing clear, those results that I'm talking about are correlational. So between, say, unhappiness and these mental health issues and spending time on screens. So there's the possibility because of that that it could be, for example, unhappy teens are thus spending more time on social media rather than social media leading to unhappiness. However, there's three other studies that pretty much rule that out and suggest that it really is a causal relationship. So two followed people over time and found that they... Um, people who spend more time on social media, then that leads to unhappiness, but unhappiness did not lead to more social media use. Another one, really interesting study, uh, randomly assigned people to either give up Facebook for a week or not, and those who gave up Facebook ended the week happier, less lonely, and less depressed than those who kept up their normal use. Now, obviously, we need more studies on this, but we have to ask ourselves at this point, given what we know, um, you think about an intervention, you're a social worker, you're going to have an intervention, well, you have to weigh the risks and benefits. Well, what's the risk in um, limiting teens' use to, say, two hours a day or less? Put an app on their phone uh, that limits their social media use, let's say, to two hours a day or less, or turns off the phone at night so they can get a good night's sleep. What are the downsides to that? Not a whole lot. They can still stay connected with their friends. They're just not on that phone all the time. But what's the downside to doing nothing? To say, oh, we don't have enough research yet, or, you know, I don't believe it, or, you know, oh, they're just talking to their friends, no big deal. That risk is that these mental health issues continue. Because it's not just that there's the connection to phones. iGen is on the brink of an unprecedented mental health crisis. The suicide rate, just as one example, the suicide rate for girls ages 12 to 14 has tripled in the last 10 years. That's, I, that's, I, I mean, I'm sort of speechless because I, I didn't know that, and that is, uh, that's a terrifying statistic. How responsible would you say are parents for that, though? I mean, they, you know, it's, is it because they allow their kids to do this? To, it's, it's because it makes it easy, and, they, and maybe they're comfortable. Maybe the kids are, or their children are in the house, and they're not at the mall, or they're not driving around, so they feel, well, okay, they're safer, and they're physically more safe, and maybe thinking that they're emotionally more safe by just uh, being on their phones at home, as you say, they spend more time at home with their parents. What responsibility do the parents have for all of this? Yeah, I think that's a lot of it. So I'm a parent myself. I have three iGen children, um, all girls. And there's, of course, this temptation to keep them safe. And the thought is, if they're at home, they're safe. And physically, that is absolutely true. iGen is probably the safest generation in American history. Um, so as just one example there, the homicide rate for young people is at all-time lows. But the suicide rate now kills more teens than 
homicide. Those numbers crossed basically for the first time in history about five years ago. So there's that temptation. I think they're home, they're safe. But if they're on that screen, especially excessive amounts, then mentally they may not be safe. So, again, I ask you, what, as a, maybe just as a society, what, how, do, what, how do we attack that? Pro- what do we do? Yeah. Um, so... If you're educating parents, if you're educating right. teachers, right. I think know, that has yeah. that has to be the, the first the first step is to really get this message out that sure, phones are wonderful and great technology, but that being on that phone six to eight hours a day is not healthy. Uh, and I think that that message really hasn't been received yet, uh, partially because a lot of adults are on their phone that much too. Um, because it's addictive. I mean, that's a whole other thing we haven't talked about, and it really sucks people in. Um, so that education has to be the first step. And just practically, as, as a parent, so there's two, two things that I think um, make a lot of sense based on this research and the research of many others. First, put off getting your kid a smartphone as long as possible. So the average age to get a smartphone is now 10, which I think is way too young, given that a lot of these mental health effects are stronger for younger teens. So put it off until, let's say, starting high school, if, if at all possible, at least until eighth grade. Um, and then once um, the kid has the smartphone, it can't be a situation where it's unlimited use. Uh, it has to be something where they use one of those apps and put a limit on the amount of time they're allowed to be on certain apps or you know, cut off certain apps entirely. Um, you know, a big part of this mental health issue very well could be because a lot of kids are on their phone right before they go to sleep. They put that phone on their bedside table. Sometimes it's on, and sometimes they even do things in the middle of the night on it, and that's not conducive to, to, to good sleep, which, of course, then has mental health implications as well. So we're talking about limitations. We only have a couple minutes left. I have so much more to ask you, and I, I do want it because there is – I mean, we've only covered a couple of these topics that are in your book, and it uh, I, I find this really uh, fascinating. And I think, obviously, you have to get the information out there, which is what you do, so that we can do something about it. But um, I, I just want to mention the book again, iGen, because it's a really good book, Why Today's Super Connected Kids Are Growing Up Less Rebellious, More Tolerant, Less Happy, and Completely Unprepared for Adulthood. Gene uh, Twangy. Um, so you can... Uh, so people can continue with the conversation by getting your book. You can go online, buy the book at bookstores everywhere, Amazon. Um, do you have a website that we can go to to for the book and, you know, also what you're doing? Um, yeah, so it's it's genetwangie.com, J-E-A-N-T-W-E-N-G-E dot com, and I've got lots of stuff on uh, on the book and other things I've I've written about this research. Yeah, you've done a lot of research, <laughs> a lot of research about all these different, about the different generations. But yeah, Jean Twangy, PhD, professor of psychology at San Diego, San Diego State University. Uh, it's been great having you on the show today. Thanks so much. Lots more to talk about. Uh, love to have you on the show again. Sounds great. Yep. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. We hope you have enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. 
Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. 